We continue our series on the Psalms today, and before we get to this week's Psalm, I want to talk and make a quick comment about last week's Psalm. Psalm 4610 says that be still and know that we are God, and I've had some people uh, come up to me and say, so if we're in crisis while we're driving down the road, according to what you told us last week, we should just take our hands off the wheel and be still. No, that is not what I was talking about. But the, one of the things I want to remind us of is that in the midst of the chaos, we take a moment and remember, and if we're driving down the road, keep your hands on the wheel, right? But we, we remember that God is the one who's in control, that he's the one that's going to walk us through whatever it is that's going on in our life. That's what it means by being still. So I wanted to make that quick clarification in case some of you tried that this week and took your hands off the wheel, and who knows what would have happened at that point. So I just wanted to address that issue there. Getting lost is absolutely no fun. I've been lost numerous times in my life, and, and, and it's been a rather frustrating and aggravating experience for me. We had a family vacation in Chicago a number of years ago, and, and our hotel was right around the corner from this, from this uh, place called Burrito Beach that we had eaten at just a few days prior. And, and we woke up this morning and said, man, that place sounds really good right now. We're going to go for it. And so, so we, uh, we went downstairs. And my oldest daughter, Stephanie, has no, she, she can find anywhere at any time. She's very good at directions. And so as we left the hotel, she said, Dad, it's this way. And I said, Stephanie, I know where I'm going. We're going to be there in no time at all. And she said, Dad, you're going the wrong way. I said, Stephanie, I know where I'm going. And she then said, okay, fine. So the family followed me. We came to the corner, and I said, it's right around the corner. And we look around the corner, and the restaurant's not there. I said, well, we just need to go a little bit further. So around every corner, I said, it's going to be around every corner. This lasted for 30 minutes. For 30 minutes, we continued walking in the wrong direction. For 30 minutes, I, I found myself getting more and more angry. I was getting angry at myself for getting us lost. I was angry with the restaurant for apparently moving locations without notifying me. I was angry with my family because they were behind me snickering the whole way, saying he doesn't realize what he's doing. And I was angry with the city of Chicago for the way it laid itself out. And it was at this point, after 30 minutes, where I realized that my attitude needed to be restored. And the only way that my attitude would be restored is by admitting that I was lost. And so I turned to my family and I said, we're lost. <laughs> Stephanie looked at me and said, no, duh. <laughs> and then I looked at Stephanie, and this took a lot of humble pie for me. I looked at Stephanie, and I said, Stephanie, can you get us to where we need to go? <laughs> and she said, I most certainly can. 
and she led the way. She got us there. She got us there without any problem at all. Even though I had got us so lost, she was able to get us there. It still took us time. And upon entering the restaurant, Stephanie looks at me and just says, Dad, if we had turned left rather than right out of, the, out of our hotel, we would have been here in one minute. <laughs> and I said, Stephanie, I'm not buying your lunch. <laughs> no, that's not what I said. But when we get lost, there comes this time when we have to admit that we are lost. And the Israelites had it all. They had everything. They had been released from slavery. God had brought them out of Egypt from slavery. They had made their way into the promised land. This fledgling people that was so small compared to all the neighboring countries around them and all the neighboring nations around them, this fledgling people had become big. They had become powerful. They had become influential in the region. And God laid out very clearly, go in this direction and watch what happens. I will take care of you. But the Israelites, the Israelites said, you know what, Lord? We can take care of ourselves. We're going to go in this direction. With each step that they took, they grew further away from the Lord. With every step, they found themselves in a darker and darker place that held out no hope. With every step, they placed themselves right back into a situation of slavery and oppression. And with every step, it led to being captive, being, being captured and taken over by a group of people called the Assyrians. The Assyrians oppressed them. The Assyrians made fun of them. The Assyrians did a lot of horrible things to them. We come to this place in the Psalms now where the psalmist is reflecting, not just simply reflecting, but realizing that they need to be restored. We come to this psalm that, that is, a, is, a re, is a response to the fact that we are lost and we need to be restored. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 80 and listen to these words. Hear us, shepherd of Israel, who you, who, you who led Joseph like a flock. You who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Awaken your might. Come and save us. Restore us, O God. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. How long, Yahweh God Almighty, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us an object of derision to our neighbors and our enemies mock us. Restore us, God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove up that drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Its branches reached as far as the sea, its shoots as far as the river. Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Boars from the forest 
ravage it, and insects from the fields feed on it. Return to us, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine that the root your right hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down. It is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Restore us, Yahweh, God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Father, we pray now as we look at your word. We pray that we would keep in mind how great you are. That we would keep in mind that you are the one that conquered death. That you are the one who's coming back. And we pray that your Holy Spirit now would open our eyes so that we can see our need for restoration. That you would open our ears so that we can hear the message of restoration that you have for us. That you would open our mind that we can understand what it means to be restored by you. And that you would open our hearts so that we would be a restored and transformed people. Holy Spirit, may no one hear anything that I say, but only what it is that you want them to hear and need them to hear. And Lord Jesus, may you be praised. And Lord, as we hear rain coming down, we pray that we not forget how you rain down on us your incredible grace in an abundant way. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yeah, we know it's raining. We can hear it. Um, <laughs> and I'm all distracted now because it's, it's coming. When the psalmist is writing this, we, you'll notice at the top of the psalm that it says this. This is a psalm of Asaph. We're in the middle of these, of these psalms, and, and the psalms can be broken down into three or four books, and depending on, on how you want to break it down. But, but we're in this section of psalms that are called the psalms of Asaph. We don't know a whole lot about Asaph. There's not a whole lot of information about him. Outside of this, we know this. He was, really, he was a great musician. That's what we know. His sons were great musicians as well. And so we come to this place as he's, as he's writing this and reflecting on this, and all the Psalms of, a, of Asaph are Psalms of distress. All of us have different distresses that are going on in our lives. And, and, and one of the things that I love about these Psalms, about the Psalms of Asaph, is that no matter how bleak things are for the psalmist and the people, we know this, the psalmist knows this, Asaph knows this, that always and forever, God is still on his throne. Listen to the way he opens this. He says, hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who led Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim. He all, we need to always and forever remember who, we're, who we are addressing. We need to remember that all the time. And God is still God. He does not become less because of our distress. God is still God, and he does not become less because of our distress. That's what Asaph is dealing with here. And, and you see this amazing way of starting off this psalm, and he refers to God as the shepherd. 
This incredibly intimate relationship that a shepherd has with the sheep. It's a relationship that is so intimate and so intense that sheep will not go to another shepherd's voice. He's responding to this and he's remembering how intimate that relationship once was. You can realize that there's something bigger going on, but then he says this in the middle of verse 1. He says, you who sit enthroned between, between the cherubim shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Shine forth, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Why those three tribes? Again, he's remembering back to what God did in bringing the people into the promised land. Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh were the three tribes that went first into the promised land. He's saying, God, just as you were real then, and you relieved us, and you took care of us in the midst of our distress, and you brought us into the promised land, I'm remembering that now. That's the type of God that we need right now. We need you here. And then it's almost like something stirred within him and he came to this realization that God enjoys restoration. He enjoys restoring things. He enjoys restoring things. Restore to us, oh God, restore us, oh God. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. He knows that there's no getting around this. They have a very difficult situation. And in the process of that, he's saying, God, you're the one that we need to be restored by. You're the one that offers us that restoration. But then he does something interesting in verse 4. How long, Yahweh God Almighty, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us an object of derision to our neighbors, and our enemies mock us. Restore us, God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Now Asaph gets to the heart of the issue. His distress, their distress as a people, is large. And he gets to the heart of the issue, and he realizes something, and it's this, is that just as God is always and forever on his, on his throne, and that is truth, it is also true that sin is always unsatisfying and unrefreshing. There's this slow realization for Asaph that we've gone astray. But before he gets to that realization... He does something that, that happens all the time, and he reflects on who God is and how awesome God is. Verse 4, how long, Yahweh God Almighty, and notice this, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? Sin does great damage. And in the midst of that great damage, may we never, ever, forget that the Lord is never a fan of sin. He does not sit idly by. The emotions that Asaph is attributing to God is a tough topic to discuss. God designed us in such a way that all of us have emotions. God has emotions, and his emotions are perfect. 
But he says, will your anger smolder against the prisoner of people? The people were praying. The people were praying, and, 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 and Asaph says, why are you still angry? We're praying. Well, it's because they were simply going through the motions. They were simply going through the motions, and, and, and the consequences of our sin are always worse than we think. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Turn to Mark chapter 14, and, and yes, God, has, God, God does not like our sin at all. He, he, he doesn't enjoy it at all. And it's something that is big and deep and overwhelming. In Mark chapter 14, look at verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him and began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little, fur, little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed, if possible, that the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. This cup of, of, of this wrath that I'm going to have to deal with because I'm going to pay the penalty for the sins of humanity. Take it away from me. Jesus Christ understood how deep and how harsh that was. And because Jesus Christ loves you and I so much, he said this, yet not what I will, but what you will. I'll take that I'll take that cup because that's what I need to do. The consequences of our sin are always worse than we think. Back to Psalm 80. It says this, You have fed them with the bread of tears. The people who once ate manna, which is considered bread from heaven, are now eating the bread of tears. You've made them drink tears by the bowlful. The people who once drank wine in their celebration of being set free from the oppression of the Egyptians are now drinking tears by the bowlful. You've made us an object of derision to your neighbors and our enemies mock us. The people who were once shouting praise to the Lord for the victories that he gave them over their enemies are now hearing their enemies mock them. Our sin always costs us it's always worse than we think there's a quote that i read the other day and i've shared this with you before and it's this sin will take you further than you want to go keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay it's a pretty good definition of sin and so as asaph is looking at this and he's seeing what's going on and realizing we are in trouble he then again comes to this truth that God enjoys restoration. Verse 7, Restore us, God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. God enjoys restoring people. He does this all the time. The psalmist refers to this repeatedly. And that's incredibly important to realize in the midst of our distress that we need to be restored. We need someone to come alongside us. And he revisits, starting in verse 8, he revisits this amazing reputation that God has 
Verse 8, you transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Its branches reached as far as the sea, its shoots as far as the river. He's remembering back to this great reputation that God has, this this reputation of, of taking care of people, of taking care of his people. And a real quick caveat, anytime you're reading the Bible and you see this word vine in there, more often than not, more than 90% of the time, that vine is referring to the people Israel. So he's throwing this in there and he's saying, you transplanted us from Egypt, you rescued us from Egypt, from that oppression. And he lists all these things. You cleared the ground, and because you cleared the ground, we were able to take root. Because you cleared the ground and took care of our enemies, we were able to flourish. He's remembering back to the truth of who God is. And and I ask you this question right now. What do we know to be true of God? In the midst of our distress, in the midst of situations that happen in our lives, what do we know to be true of God? The psalmist goes back and says, this is what I know to be true. We need you to be involved. Is there anyone more involved in a person's life who knows us better than God himself? We're told in Scripture that he knows the numbers of the hairs on our head. That before a word comes out of our mouth, he knows it already. He knows us intimately. There's no one who knows us better. We also need protection. Is there anyone who can protect us better than God himself? Not at all. We also need someone who knows what's best for us. Is there anyone who knows what's best for us outside of God Almighty? The answer is no. I want to do a little exercise with you, and you'll see where I'm going here in just a moment. What strikes me as this is that we can look at things and pick which one is better. So here we go. Look at this slide. Which is better, this or this? Let's just be very frank. A green smoothie might be really better for... This is not going to work. I'm realizing I am now in a lot of trouble. The green thing... If I'm given the green thing versus a grilled steak with some asparagus, the green thing is going to stay in the cup, and I'm moving to the asparagus. It tastes better. There we go. That's what I'm going to go with. It tastes better. Let's go to the second one. might get me out of this dip that I'm in right now. Which is better, this or this? I don't know of too many people that enjoy snowstorms in the middle of a city. I would tend to believe that many people would enjoy that view. Which is better, this or this? They are not both bad. For all you cowboy fans, I know there's some in here. For you, my point is, we know which is best, the Steelers. So we deal with it there, okay? So just saying that right now, all right, back to this. We have an opinion about everything, and we can have a difference of opinion between a smoothie and a steak, between a snowstorm and a beautiful sunset on a beach, between the Raiders and the Steelers. We can have different opinion on all of those things. But here's what strikes me as odd. 
Why then do we have such a shaky opinion on what is best for us, that being God himself? Why is it that we, enter, that we entertain this idea that this is really good, God is best, but we're still going to go in this direction? We could list all types of things, which is better, which is better, which is better, which is better, and we'll have a variety of opinions, but yet just a few moments ago, we all agree that God knows what's best for us. And yet, so often, we doubt it. The psalmist Asaph and his sons are going through this and they realize that God is the best and yet what did they do? They turned away. They said, we can do this on our own. So often you and I say God knows what's best for us, but we turn away. We turn away and in the midst of it, here's what happens. We go into what is called the blame game. Look at verse 12. The psalmist writes this, Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Boars from the forest ravage it and insects from the fields feed on it. The psalmist does what you and I do so often. Blames God for their distress. They blame God for their distress. How often have you found yourself, have I found myself in a situation that is our own doing and then we have the audacity to say, God, this is your fault. Because that's what he's saying here. Why have you broken down its walls? No responsibility there. None whatsoever. And here's what struck me as I was working on the message this week was this, why would God invest all this time in taking care of this vine and all of a sudden say, you know what, I'm done taking care of it. I will destroy those walls. It's illogical. God would not do that and God doesn't do that. We go our own way and because we go our own way, we don't take care of stuff and what ends up happening is we get ourselves in trouble. We get ourselves in a whole lot of trouble. And then he says this in verse 13, Boars from the forest ravage it, and insects from the fields feed on it. It's an interesting comparison that he does here. Boars are these humongous beasts that just ravage everything. And insects are these tiny little things that you don't pay much attention to but cause significant damage as well. What, what the psalmist is pointing to is this, is that everything in all of this, in this spectrum from the biggest to the smallest is getting a piece of us right now in the midst of our distress. The sad truth of the matter is this, when we are in distress, this world will continue to kick us while we're down. It will take and take and take. I continue marveling at the way the world continues responding to this college admission scandal. And they continue to kick those who are down. And they continue kicking and they continue taking advantage. This world is a tough place and it will continue kicking and taking when we're down. But the psalmist knows this, that God enjoys restoration. 
Verse 14, return to us, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Even though everybody's taking advantage of us, even though we're in a distressful situation, even though we're blaming you, we know this, that if you return to us, you will revive us, you will restore us. And there's this change that happens. Verse 16, your vine is cut down, it is burned with fire at your rebuke, your people perish. And verse 17, let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. All of a sudden reality sets in and he realizes this blame game isn't taking care of the problem. And he realizes, he realizes he needs to be restored. Not only he needs to be restored, but the people need to be restored as well. And then he says this in verse 19. Restore us, Yahweh God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. A cold dose of reality does wonders for us. When I was taking my family further and further and further away from our destination, there was a cold dose of reality that we were getting hungrier and I was out of line. There was a cold dose of reality that I had to say, we, I'm done, I can't do this. I need help. So often in our lives, we look at it, and, and, and as we continue down this path, and we take one step after another step after another step, and we end up way over here when we're supposed to be here, all of a sudden, it hits us, wow, we've lost course. We're off course. And it awakens us to the fact that we need restored. And there's only one who can do that. And what's interesting throughout this psalm is that you see this realization begin to set in with this refrain. Look at verse 3, then we're going to look at verse 7, and we're going to look at verse 19. Listen to this. Verse 3, restore us, O God, make your face shine on us that we may be saved. This comes across as God is far off, that God doesn't want to be really, he's not, there isn't this great intimacy, even though he had addressed God as the shepherd. Now he's saying, restore to us, O God. He's sort of keeping God off in the distance. Then look at verse 7. Restore us, God Almighty. Restore us, God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. He starts in verse 3 with restore to us, O God. Now in verse 7 he says, restore, restore us, O God Almighty. All of a sudden there's a realization of God's the one who has power. Yes, he's still God here in verse 3, but I'm beginning to understand that he's a lot more powerful than what I acknowledged in verse 3. We move to verse 7, and all of a sudden we see that he's got this power. And then it comes and hits him hard in verse 19. Restore us, Yahweh, God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Asaph all of a sudden realizes the only one that can take care of us, the only one that cares about us is God himself. And notice the way he addresses him. He calls God by God's personal name. 
the intimacy. God, you're the one that has our best interests in mind. God, you're the one that's going to take care of us. We cry out to you and say, make your face shine on us that we may be saved. As we wander off into the distance and and as we wander off pace, so often we think that God, we need to keep God at a distance because because if we we let him know what's going on in our lives, he's going to get upset with us or whatever. You know what? God doesn't like sin, yet he always is there to restore. He's always there, and then we need his power to restore us, and then we need his person to completely restore us and take care of us. You see, God enjoys restoration. God enjoys restoration, and the psalmist seems to be on to something here in verses 17 and 18. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand. And the next phrase, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. That son of man has a name, and his name is Jesus Christ. He's the one. How do we know God enjoys restoration? Because of Jesus Christ, who restores us in the midst of our distress, who restores us in the midst of doing things that we ought not be doing, who restores us in our brokenness, who restores us and never stops restoring us. He is always restoring us. He loves it. He enjoys it. My hope, my prayer for this community of faith, this community of Christ followers, is that in the midst of our lives that we would realize that God enjoys restoration. He enjoys it so much, and he enjoys it because of Jesus Christ. And it's my hope that we continue following him, leaning on him for his restoration, leaning on him to walk with us in the midst of whatever comes our way. That's the type of God we have one who enjoys restoration, one who will not let us down, who always wants the best for us, and who knows where we need to go if we would only follow him every step of the way. Father, we pray now. As we reflect on these words, we would ask that your Holy Spirit would, in the midst of our lives right now, help us see our need for restoration? Is it a relationship, Lord, that you're calling us to be restored? Is it an ongoing sin issue that we continue to battle in which we need to be restored? Is it our understanding of who you are and what you're about that needs to be restored. Lord, you enjoy restoration. And we would ask that you would restore us, that you would revive us, And that you would be glorified 
and that you would be praised so that we could then say to you, thank you. And may your face shine on us that we may be saved. We love you and we thank you for the restoration that comes to us through Jesus Christ. May we never forget that. And for those in this room that wonder if their life can be restored, we would ask that you would reveal to them the fact that yes, it can be restored and that the one who did the restoring is Jesus Christ. May that happen. May we not be so caught up in our distress that we forget that you restore. And may we turn to you and say, restore us. Lord Jesus, restore us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So I invite you to stand now as we sing a couple more songs. The worship team's going to come up and and get ready, and as we, as they get ready in this, in this time of quietness, may we uh, take those moments to reflect on God's restoration, God's renewing us. And we're going to sing this, I think it's a hymn, right, Heidi? It's it, Revive Us, right? So revive us again. And so we invite you to uh, sing out.